So the year was 1997 that Tracy and I went to the Holy Land for the very first time. Um, We were new travelers. Uh, We had never been, I don't think we had ever been out of the country anywhere prior to that. Certainly we had never been to Israel prior to that. And for the very first time in 1997, we went to visit uh, the land of the Bible. We didn't know it at the time, but that, of course, uh, was the first of what has now become almost 40 trips to the Holy Land, where we take people uh, every year and teach the Bible in the very places where it happened. Many of you have been with us on one of those trips, and some of you are going uh, with us in just about 45 days. We're taking another group uh, there near the end of October. By the way, there there are still a couple of spots available. If you want to go in October, let us know, but... But in 1997, we went for the very first time. And we were immersed, as you can imagine, we were immersed in experiences that we had never, we had never enjoyed before. We were sort of immersed in the culture of, of this land where we had never been. We were smelling fragrances we had never smelled. We were tasting foods we had never eaten before. We were hearing languages spoken that we had never heard before. We were just totally immersed in this brand new culture. And I'll never forget an experience that I had walking down the corridor of our hotel. It was one of the most memorable moments of that journey for me. And you may think, well, that's kind of strange. Like when you go to Israel the first time, you ought to remember the garden tomb and Calvary and, and you know, uh, kind of where Jesus walked on the water on the lake. One of my most memorable moments happened in the hallway of the hotel on the Sea of Galilee. I got off the elevator, I was walking down to our hotel room, and just in front of me, there was a little Jewish boy who was probably seven, six, seven, eight years old, something like that. He walked up to what was obviously his hotel room door, and he knocked on the door, and for the very first time, I heard this word spoken in Hebrew. I'd never heard it before in my life. He said, Abba, which of course means father or or daddy, if you will. Abba. And I was immediately struck by that word, this this word that I knew from the lips of Jesus and this word that I knew from the Bible, Abba. Well, he looked down the hallway and he saw me coming and he knocked a little more frantically. He said, Abba. And I kept getting closer and closer. My room was beyond his, okay? I wasn't being a creeper. I was just going to my room. And the closer I got, he was pounding, Abba. And just as I got very near to him, the door opened, his father opened the door, and he rushed inside, you know, delivered from the American terror coming down the hallway, and and the door closed. Imagine that, a little boy knocking on the door of his father's house, if you will, calling out Abba. I want you to look at Luke chapter 11 and verse number 2 and listen to the words of Jesus. Luke 11 verse 2. Jesus said unto them, when you pray, say, our Father. Jesus taught his disciples, he's taught us to pray, our Father. And when Jesus spoke these words in Luke chapter number 11, he spoke in Aramaic and he would have used, no question, the word Abba. When you pray, say, Abba, our Father. That is the way that we are to pray. So let me welcome you into the second week of this, uh, of this series that we're currently in. 
that we're calling Get Fit, as you know. And this is a few weeks that we have set aside where we are, by God's grace, pursuing uh, spiritual fitness. We are thinking together about what it looks like for us to be spiritually fit. Last week, I uh, outlined for you what is the goal of this journey and in a larger sense, what is the goal of all of our Christian lives. And that's this. Write it down somewhere if you didn't get it last week or even just as a reminder for you this week. Here it is. The goal of the Christian life is godliness. It's a pretty simple truth. The goal of the Christian life is godliness. Now, we're not talking about some sort of legalistic, religious sort of piety that we achieve because we restrict our behavior to some prescription or form that religion demands. We're not talking about, as I said last week, getting up every morning and trying harder to be better and, and somehow becoming godly like that. No, what we're learning is that the goal of the Christian life is godliness and the worker of godliness within us is the person of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit within us who is committed to the work of sanctification, of taking your life and mine, forming them, shaping our lives, making our character, our lives to be like Jesus is what Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says that God is working all things for his purpose for us, his goal for us, which is, the verse goes on to say, we learned it last week, conformity into the likeness of his son. That's God's goal, that he is going to make us to be like his son, Jesus. And I just need to say to you, God is completely, if you know Christ, God is completely committed to that work in your life. He is not going to give up. He is not going to let up. He will complete it. This is the promise of Scripture. He will complete the work that he has begun in you. But we also recognize that while it's his work, we are not passive in that process. We are participants in that process. And so we have a part to play in the process of the Holy Spirit shaping our lives to be like Jesus or to be more godly. And the way that we participate in that process is through spiritual disciplines. We exercise spiritual disciplines in order to participate with the Holy Spirit in making us to be godly. Now, this is what we learned last week in 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verse number 7 where Paul writes this to Timothy, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Exercise yourself for godliness. Be disciplined for godliness. I told you last week the word that's used there is gymnazo. It literally means to go to the gym, to train yourself with discipline, be disciplined in order to grow in godliness. Here's the principle. We learned it last week. We embrace spiritual disciplines as a means of growing toward the goal of godliness. Let me say it again. The reason we embrace spiritual disciplines, not because the pastor said we ought to, but we embrace spiritual disciplines for one reason. And that is to exercise or discipline ourselves that we might grow toward the goal of godliness. 
And so we began last Sunday, and I laid out for you last Sunday the first spiritual discipline that every believer needs to exercise themselves in in order to grow in godliness, and that is the discipline of Bible reading or scripture intake or study of the Word of God. To grow in grace, to grow in godliness, we need to be receiving the Word of God. Now, I introduced this to you last week, and I told you that I would revisit it today. And so I just want to say a few things about it, and then we'll move on to the second spiritual discipline. Let me begin with you as we think about Scripture intake by affirming what's absolutely true, and I think most of you know this, but just to remind you that there has never been in the history of the human family, in the history of the world, there has never been a book that has impacted your life as much as the Bible. Do you believe that that's true? As much as, as nothing has impacted your life as much as the scriptures. Now you may argue with that because you may say, well, that may be true for some people, but that's not true for me. You might even say, I'm not a Christian. I don't read the Bible. So the Bible's never had any impact in my life at all. Oh, but you would be mistaken. Because it doesn't really matter whether you are a believer or an unbeliever in terms of your life being impacted by the Bible. Whether you're a believer or an agnostic or an atheist, you might be a regular church attender or rather irreligious and you just happen to be here today or happen to be tuning in online today. You may be a person who says, I am not a Bible believer at all, but I want you to know the Bible has impacted your life. One of the reasons that it has is because of the sheer availability, the abundance of the Bible throughout the world. It is without dispute that this is the most printed or copied, printed, and distributed book in the history of the world. Friends, nothing else even comes close to the distribution of the Bible. One of the most popular series of books in all history is the Harry Potter series. And the Harry Potter series has printed and sold an astounding number of copies. Almost 500 million, can you imagine? 500 million copies of that book or those books have been copied and distributed around the world. We would look at that and say, that's an amazing number but it does not even scratch the surface of the number of Bibles distributed around the world. The estimate of Bibles in circulation, and I'm not talking about on your phone or on a device, I'm talking about printed Bibles distributed in circulation around the world today is estimated to be 7 billion copies around the world. 7 billion with a B. Now think about it. That means that if the Bible could be evenly distributed throughout every country in the world, there would be almost enough Bibles in the world for every person on the planet to have their own copy of the Scriptures. If it existed in every language, and it doesn't yet, but if we could distribute it around the world evenly, it would go to almost every single person. The world has been shaped and influenced by the scriptures because the scriptures have covered the world. Not only global distribution, but when you begin to think about where we live in, in the West, 
So much of Western civilization, Western culture, has been shaped by the influence of the scriptures. One author wrote this. He said that the Bible has uh, propelled the development of everything good in the West. Human dignity is found in the scriptures. Human rights, notions of equality, justice, heroism, compassion, medicine, education, economic progress, and political freedom. All of these values are found within the pages of Scripture. He went on to say that the Scriptures have provided guidance and inspiration for the arts, for literature, and philosophy. In every way that you can imagine, our culture has been shaped through the teachings of the, of the uh, Holy Scriptures. Even the ways in which we speak. Did you know that there are hundreds of turns of phrase, idioms, that we use on a regular basis that came out of the Bible? And we don't even know these are Bible phrases. Have you ever heard a kid say something really profound and somebody said, out of the mouths of babes? Did you know that phrase came from the scriptures? Certainly it did. Or if someone says, well, I'm not perfect, we all have feet of clay, that's a Bible reference. Or when somebody says, hey, let's fight the good fight, that comes from the scriptures. Many Jewish people consider this to be anti-Semitic, but when someone says, I'm just going to mosey on along now, that's a reference to Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness. On and on I could go. Western civilization has been influenced by this book down to the ways in which we speak. And it's not only Western civilization, but more narrowly, when you think about our own American culture. What we value as Americans has been so influenced because the American experiment was founded on the values that are found in the Word of God. Think about it. When you think about the influence of, of the Bible in American culture, here's why, here's why we've been so shaped by it. Did you know that 85% of American homes have at least one Bible in them? 85% of the homes on your street, somewhere on the shelf, there's a Bible. On average, American families have four Bibles in their house. Now, the truth is we would probably skew that statistic, right? Because we're going to be higher than that. But I promise you, if you go home and start counting Bibles, you've probably got far more than four Bibles in your house. I've got probably more than a dozen on my shelf in my office upstairs. We all have access to this Bible. And most people in America, even today, even today, even though it's diminishing, but most people in America believe that the Bible is a source of guidance for how to have a meaningful life. Even non-believers believe that somehow the scriptures will tell us the meaning and how to find purpose in life. Did you realize that the, that the, uh, the moral code, the moral law in the word of God is the foundation for the United States legal system? When you think about jurisprudence in America, when you think about the laws upon which this nation stands, do you know where they're rooted? They're rooted in the Bible. That's where they came from. When you ascend the steps of the Supreme Court of the United States, there atop the, the, uh, the uh, building of the Supreme Court is a stone carving of who? 
Moses with the tablets of stone, signifying that what we do in this building has a foundation, and it is rooted in the timeless truths of the moral law of the God of heaven. In America, we protect individual rights because the Bible says we should do so. In America, we protect property rights because the Bible instructs us to protect property rights. Remove not the ancient landmark, the scriptures tell us. Protect property rights. In the Bible, we are taught that violators of law are to be uh, punished and are to be um, uh, taught what is right, to be corrected in their behavior. And by the way, I would just suggest to you that when you see an increase in our culture of mob chaos, flash mobs running in and robbing stores, no judgment, no justice, no prosecution, when you see crimes being prosecuted less and less, it is evidence of a culture moving away from the word of God and a return to criminal justice. A return to justice in our streets will be a return to the values of the word of God. You live in a nation and in a world that has been influenced in ways too many to number by the Bible. Imagine your life if the Bible had never been written. Imagine what our nation would be like if we did not have the guide, the guardrails, the hope, the promises of the Word of God. Now, all of these things matter, right? All of these things are reasons that we ought to say the Bible is important, but there are more important reasons than than historical or cultural reasons. One of the reasons, in fact, the main reason that we ought to love the Bible is because the Bible instructs us in how to know God and how to live eternally with God. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says that from a child you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto the salvation that is through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul says to Timothy that the source of wisdom for salvation comes from the Bible. In other words, that we know how to be born again because the Bible tells us how to be born again. And we know that we need to be born again because the Bible tells us that. Simply put, it is the Word of God that convicts us of our sin. If I say to you, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, well, that might have some weight. But when you read in the Word of God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there is none righteous, no, not one. That, that, that conviction that you sense in your heart is from the Holy Spirit utilizing the Bible to bring conviction to you. It's the Bible that convicts us of our sin. It's the Bible that tells us of the glories of Jesus Christ. It's the Bible that tells us we can be saved because the Bible tells us of the death, burial, resurrection, and glorious saving power of Christ. And it's the Bible that tells us the way of salvation, how it is that we can come to saving faith. Every person that we baptize at Brookstone Church, we do not baptize them on the word of Pastor Jim or any other of our pastors on the basis of any creed. We baptize them on the basis of what they profess because of what they have learned from the Bible. Do you understand? The Bible tells us how to know 
and to serve the Lord. And in fact, Psalm 119 tells us in verses 1 through 8 that it is through the Bible that we learn to live a life of communion with God. It's in the Bible that we learn to live a life where we find contentment in Christ. And it's through the pages of Scripture where we learn to live a life of consistent faith and continual faith in Jesus. I think we can agree that every single Christian person, every single follower of Jesus ought to love and value the word of the living God. Amen? And so here's the principle. Here's what we learned last week. It is that regularly consuming the scriptures, regularly consuming God's word is necessary for me to experience the godly life to which I have been called. This is what we must understand. This first spiritual discipline of receiving the word is not optional. And in fact, based on what we've just learned, we ought to embrace it and be grateful to God for it, that he has given us the Bible. Last week, I gave you a goal and a spiritual discipline and suggested a habit to you that would help you to grow in godliness through the influence of Scripture. The goal I suggested was biblical literacy. I said, you need to become, your goal should be, I'm going to be literate in the Bible. doesn't mean you're going to understand everything, but you're going to have a good understanding of Scripture. You'll be able to read it and uh, and generally understand, gathering some help and, and guidance, but you will have an understanding of Scripture, Bible or biblical literacy. That should be your goal. If you're going to achieve that goal, you must embrace the spiritual discipline of regular scriptural intake. In other words, if you're going to understand it, there has to be a steady diet of it. And in order to embrace that discipline, then you need to cultivate the habit of reading a portion of scripture every day. And I did not suggest to you how much Bible you should read every day. I didn't say what your reading plan ought to be. I thought about suggesting some plans to you, but I thought, you know what, there are, there's a myriad of Bible reading plans. You can go online and find some wonderful Bible reading plans that will have you reading through the Bible every, every year, every six months. There are even some that have you reading through the Bible in 30 days. Now, that would be a lot of reading, but you can do it. But you should find a Bible reading plan, follow it, and then take the Scriptures every single day. It is not optional. It is required if we are to grow in godliness. That's the first spiritual discipline. Today we're coming to the second spiritual discipline in Luke chapter 11, and that is the discipline of personal prayer. I want you to jot that down somewhere. We're going to read this passage in Luke 11 and talk about it today, the spiritual discipline of personal prayer. Let me read to you, beginning in verse number 1 of Luke 11. It came to pass as Jesus was praying in a certain place when he ceased... One of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive everyone that has sinned or is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And you shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. 
For a friend of mine has come in his journey to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Do not trouble me, for the door is now closed. My children are in bed. My children and I are in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And I say unto you that though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And so I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Now if a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he, that father, give him a stone? Or if a son were to ask for a fish, would the father give him, instead of a fish, a serpent? Verse 12, or if he were to ask for an egg, would his father offer him a scorpion? Well, of course the answer is no. Verse 13, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? What a wonderful request for someone to make. Verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. One of his disciples, we don't know which disciple it was, and in all likelihood it wasn't one of the 12. It's probably one of the 70 or one of these other more uh, disciples of Jesus. One of those disciples sees Jesus praying and says to him, Lord, teach us to do that. Teach us to pray to the Father, to pray to God, like you pray to God. What a great request. Maybe you, on either campus, maybe you would say, I'm not very good at praying. I don't pray very often because I just don't get a lot of practice. I'm, I'm just not very good at it. Maybe you say, to, to pray in a group or to pray out loud in public, no way, man. That's way out of my comfort zone. But even to pray privately or silently, that feels a little awkward to me. I'm just not really sure how to get into it, and I struggle with that. Maybe you feel a bit of conviction about the lack of your prayer life. And I want to help you. I want to ease your guilt a little bit. I don't want to ease the conviction that the Holy Spirit may be working in your heart, but I do want to ease your guilt just a bit and say to you that prayer is something that we need to learn you weren't born learn, uh, knowing how to pray. You, you, you had to be taught how to pray. All of us who are parents have had to, the responsibility of teaching our children to pray. We teach our grandchildren how to pray. Those who are coming up behind us, our children and grandchildren, they need to see prayer happening in our lives. They need to see us pray. And they need to hear us praying. And if you always and only pray silently, your children will never learn how to pray because they will never hear you praying. They need to hear you pray. They need to see you pray, hear you pray, and they need to be guided. You need to instruct them in how to pray. And so your ability to pray 
will have an impact on your next generation's ability to pray because they need to learn it from you. If you have kids or grandkids, you know this. We, we all teach our children, you know. We come to a table, all right, don't just dig in. Fold your hands. And, and we, we teach them these baby steps of learning to pray. And you know, don't you, when you hear children pray, sometimes it's precious, right? These honest, heartfelt prayers. And other times it's just hilarious, the things that they say in prayer. In fact, with my son and daughter-in-law's permission, I brought a picture of my granddaughter to show you today. When she was at our house, Ellie was about three years old and she was getting ready to have her lunch and I said, okay, let's pray. And you can see my hands folded and she's got her little hands folded and I have no idea what I said that was so hilarious to her in that prayer. But she was cracking up at the way Papa Jay was praying. Sometimes it's precious, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's awkward, but it doesn't matter. We need to teach them to pray. And obviously, this disciple that asked, and all of us are who are Jesus' disciples, we need to learn how to pray. So let me help you with it a little bit this morning from this text. First of all, before we dive into the text specifically, let me suggest to you that you take some time and go read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Go do it later today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 1, where Paul, in his letter to Timothy, categorizes our prayers into four categories or four themes, if you will, in which we pray. It's not intended by any means to be an exhaustive list of the ways in which we pray, but it is helpful to know that there are some different emphases that we have when we pray. Here's what you'll discover in that verse, 1 Timothy 2 chapter 1, that Paul says that we have prayers, we offer supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings. So that's helpful to me. Four different ways in which we can pray. Sometimes we're just communing with God. We're just praying to him about things in general. Maybe they're confessional prayers. Maybe they're just prayers of worship and adoration and, and praise to God for who he is. But we're just in fellowship and communion with God. Then there are other times, and we all have times like this, where we are offering to God supplications. And the word and, and sometimes these words are used interchangeably, and so I don't want to make too much of a difference here. But, but the word supplication means um, literally to beg for. It's the idea of coming to God with a great request or crying out to God for something. Have you ever prayed in a way when you said, oh God, I need you? Like what we were singing a few minutes ago. Oh God, I need you in this situation. Oh God, this is a desperate situation. Well, those are, those are supplications. And then Paul speaks of intercessions. When we intercede, we are interceding for someone else. We're praying for other people or other groups of people. And so maybe you've been praying for the people of Maui in recent weeks as they've endured this difficulty uh, with the fire that came through. By the way, I do want to let you know, from our missions budget, through North Carolina Baptist, we have sent an offering from you to the people of Maui to help in their recovery. I would recommend that you do the same thing on a personal level. But maybe you've been praying for the people of, of Maui. Uh, the Bible says that we ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's an intercession for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, who is it? Zechariah that says we ought to pray for the city where we are. So, so the, sometimes we're interceding as we're praying on behalf of others. And then sometimes we're offering prayers of thanksgiving. This is simply an act of saying to God, thank you for being good to me. Thank you for your kindness to me. Sometimes we pray those prayers or supplications and intercessions 
or prayers of thanksgiving, sometimes we pray them silently. God doesn't have to hear you verbally in order to hear your prayers. You don't have to pray out loud for God to hear you. It's fine to pray silently. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel that Hannah prayed that way when she prayed for a son. Her lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. In her grief, she was praying silently. Sometimes we pray loudly. Sometimes when we pray, we shout our prayers. Maybe you grew up in a church where everybody prayed when the church would pray. Everybody prayed out loud together, shouting at a roar filling the church. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. Nothing wrong with praying loudly. Bartimaeus, in the book of Mark, we're told, prayed loudly, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Loud. That's fine. Sometimes our prayers are very personal. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 9 that one man prayed, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And sometimes our prayers are corporate. We pray as a church. The Bible tells us in Acts 12 that the church gathered to pray for Peter. Sometimes our prayers are spontaneous. They're not planned. They're not arranged. Something happens and we go to prayer. This is what happened in Matthew chapter 14 when Peter walks on the water, gets a few steps out, and then begins to seek. When you start sinking in water like that, you pray spontaneous prayers. Amen? Peter didn't start sinking and go, now dear Lord, let me have a moment of devotion. Lord, save me! Sometimes we pray that way. When we pray uh, prayers of supplication or intercession or prayers of thanksgiving, sometimes they're spontaneous. Sometimes they're, they're an ongoing. It's a prayer life that never stops. Paul said to Timothy, pray without ceasing. Sometimes uh, when we pray, we pray in a dedicated or a specific place. Where we go and that's our place to pray. Jesus would often go on the hilltop surrounding the Sea of Galilee to be alone, to pray there. We know that when he was in Jerusalem, he would often go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would pray alone in that garden. It was a place where he would go to pray. It's a dedicated, specific time or place of prayer. But no matter where you pray, no matter how you're praying, and no matter with whom you're praying, Jesus has taught us how to pray. And I want you to see this in Luke chapter number 11. Write it down. Here's the first thing. This passage in verses 1 through 4 give us the prayer model that Jesus taught. Jesus was alone in prayer, and he says, when you pray, say, our Father. There's that word, Abba. Now, it's written in Greek, uh, when, uh, when Luke wrote it down. But when Jesus spoke it, as I mentioned, he would have spoken it in, in Aramaic. Abba, he would have said. When you pray, say Abba. And the word Abba indicates intimacy, deep intimacy with God, but intimacy that is full of reverence and submission. Hear me. If someone ever says to you, just call God Abba, he's daddy, just kind of jump up in his lap and he's your daddy. That's not incorrect, but you must understand that he is the Lord God Almighty. That intimacy is filled with reverence and submission. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Listen to Jesus pray in Mark chapter number 14 where he says, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In that moment of intimacy, Jesus said, this is my request, but you know what's best. 
And this is the model of prayer that he gives us in Luke chapter number 11. Did you notice in this model prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer very often, and many of you could recite it as you pray. But did you notice in verse number two, he said, Our, or he said thy name, thy kingdom, thy will. That's where he started. Your name is exalted, not mine. Your kingdom rules, I don't. And your will is best, not mine. And having begun with your name, your kingdom, your will, then he says, give us, forgive us, guide us, and lead us. This kind of prayer reminds us that he is first and he is right and he knows best. And every prayer is submitted to that. Sometimes we don't pray that way, do we? Sometimes we, we pray spoiled. If y'all love your pastor, shout amen. <laughs> Sometimes we pray spoiled brat little prayers, demanding prayers, forgetting that God knows best. I don't. And so we just demand these. Sometimes we pray like the spoiled kid in, in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Do y'all remember Veruca? Who said, I want it now. That's the way we pray. God, give me now. Give me this and give me that. And I demand and I want and you must. And That's not the way to pray. The model prayer is, God, you're first. You're high. You're holy. You're right. And I trust you and hear my needs. That's the model for our prayer. The second thing that this passage teaches us is the attitude, the prayerful attitude that Jesus taught. It's verses five through eight, where he gives us this parable of the importunate friend. Not the important friend, but the importunate friend. Do you see the word in verse number eight? Because of his importunity. Jesus tells the story of this, this guy who's, a, who's in his house at midnight and there's a knock on his door and it's a friend of his who's arrived from a long journey late at night. His friend is hungry and, and Middle Eastern hospitality demanded that he puts some food in front of him no matter what time it is, fix a meal, and he has nothing to serve him. And so he runs next door to his neighbor and he pounds on the door at midnight and the neighbor from within says, why do you want? It's midnight. And he says, a friend of mine has come. I need to feed him. I have nothing to feed him. Would you lend me three loaves of bread? And his friend says, no, go away. It's midnight. We're in bed. I'm not going to rise and give you three loaves of bread. But the Bible says in verse number eight, because of his importunity, he would rise and give. And the word importunity means shameless asking. He just kept knocking. Do you see the emphasis in verse six? Look at it. A friend of mine in his journey has come to me and I have nothing. That's the attitude of prayer. I have nothing. Jesus, if you don't do this, it won't get done. Jesus, if you don't fix this, it won't get fixed. Jesus, if you don't help in this situation, it's not going to be helped. I have nothing. I am completely dependent upon you. That's what it means to have importunity. Asking because I have nowhere else to go. Prayer is the declaration of our dependence upon God. And so he goes on and says in verse 9, so keep asking because if you ask, you'll receive. And so keep seeking because if you seek, you'll find. And so keep knocking because if you knock, it will. If you keep knocking, it will be opened unto you. God sees your need. He knows your heart. and He will answer your prayer. Third and final thing that this passage teaches us about prayer is the, the, the prayer answer that God promises. 
the prayer answer that God promises. And you may be asking, well, pastor, is there a guarantee? If I pray, am I guaranteed God's going to answer my prayers? Yes, with two caveats. Caveat number one is his answer may not be what you want. Abba, Father, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours. God, your name, your kingdom, your ways, your rule, your right. And so you may ask God for something and he says no. Or he answers in another way. It gives you what he knows is best. He says um, that we should ask with that attitude. As we learned, the second caveat to will God answer is this. God promises to answer the prayers of his children. If you don't know Jesus, there's no guarantee that God is going to be responsive to your prayer. I'm not saying God never answers the prayer of an unbeliever. God's sovereign. He can answer what he wants to answer. But there's no promise that he will answer your prayer if you don't know Jesus. You read this passage. He says, when you pray, say, Abba, Father. You're my Father. And when you go down to the end, verse number 13, he says, if you, or, or verse number 11 through 13, if a son asks bread, is his father going to give him a stone? If he asks for a, for a fish, is he going to give him a serpent? If he asks for an egg, is he going to give him a serpent, a, a scorpion? No, of course not. And he says, and you're evil. And if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your sons, How much more will your heavenly Father, who is it? Your heavenly Father. Answered prayers are the privilege of the sons and the daughters of God. So if you don't know Jesus, pray the prayer of salvation. God, forgive my sins. I turn from my sin and give my life to Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone. That prayer God has promised to answer every single time. And so we must learn to pray. We must pray with the right attitude and we must pray with the authority of Christ as our head submitted to his lordship and we trust for his promises. And so let me close today by giving you a goal, suggesting a discipline regarding prayer and then suggest a couple of habits to you very quickly. Number one, let me suggest that the goal in your life and mine for prayer should be to live with an attitude of complete dependence upon Jesus. That's where we want to get to. No more self-reliance. Self-reliance is the enemy of prayer. If I'm self-reliant, I don't need to pray. I can just depend on myself. The goal of my prayer life is to come to a place where I understand my dependence upon Jesus. The way to get there, the discipline that I need in order to come to that understanding is to begin to pray about everything. So my prayers lead me into that dependence. Dependence will ultimately produce the prayers, but the prayers, first of all, take me to the place of dependence. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says, Worry about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. So develop the discipline of praying about everything. And as you begin to pray about everything, you will become more and more and more dependent upon Jesus, understanding your dependency, your importunity. And you will continue to ask and you will become less and less self-reliant. And in order to embrace that discipline, let me suggest two habits to you as we close. Number one is to pray at a specific time or place every day. Now this is a real discipline. So to identify a place where you go to pray, if you can find a place, maybe it's your your favorite chair in the mornings with a cup of coffee, maybe at your desk, or, or I would suggest that it's not in the car driving. You may pray during that time, but that's not what I'm suggesting. But a quiet place where you have some time, even just a few minutes, to, to say, this is where I come to meet with God. I suggest that you find a place 
And even if you can set a time, a consistent time, this is the time that I go to meet with the Lord. If you'll develop that habit, it will produce a discipline of prayer. That prayer discipline will then lead you into greater and greater dependence upon Jesus. One last uh, suggestion for a habit is if you are married, pray with your spouse daily. This is my suggestion to you. Husbands and wives, cultivate this habit where every day you pray together. And, and most couples don't do this. So if you're going, oh, I've never done that. That scares me. I don't know what would that be like. Listen, you're not alone. Most couples don't do it, but I'm highly recommending it. Because if you will begin to come together and pray, and husband, I challenge you to take the lead in it, but ladies, you can suggest it. If, if, you know, if you hadn't gotten there yet, it's okay for you to say, ladies, say, hey, sweetheart, come on, let's pray. And he's going to go, oh, yeah, I was just getting ready to say that. All right? <laughs> but come together and pray. Now, here's one rule for that prayer time. That's not the time to pray about your spouse. It's the time to pray with your spouse. So it's another time you go, Lord Jesus, I'm so glad we could gather like this so you and I could talk about what's wrong with her. <laughs> Don't do that. Pray every day. Find a place. Set a time. Pray with your spouse if you're married. And your reliance upon Jesus will grow like you've never seen before.